thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Well, on The Naked Scientist this week, how brains recognise faces, how a GM crop has solved one problem and created another one in the form of a new kind of plant pest, and how Tibetans that live at high altitudes have evolved a new set of unique genes to help them to tolerate low levels of oxygen in the air. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and also here this week is Diana O'Carroll. Hello, Diana. Yes, hello, and also this week we're going to be looking at the science of synthetic biology, how researchers are using nature's toolkit to produce artificial biological systems and even whole new forms of life. That's all on the way, Chris. Thank you very much, Diana. So if you'd like to get in touch with the programme then the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at us on Twitter, it's at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. So this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll. And now let's take a look at what's hot this week in the world of science news. Diana, what have you got for us? This week, a group of researchers from California have been able to spot the moment at which your brain recognises a face. And they've done this using the brain scanning technology known as fMRI, or Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. The team, led by Jesse Rissman, had their test subjects look at hundreds of faces from an image database. They were then shown a new set of faces, some of which had appeared in the database. As the subjects looked at each of these new pictures, the researchers scanned their brains to see if anything happened. And when the subjects did recognise a face, there was an identifiable pattern of neural activity in their brains. Now, according to the journal PNAS, where this was published, the team used software to recognise this pattern, as there were quite a few neurons to consider. And they found that this so-called neural signature, when a brain recognises a face, was consistent across all the test subjects. So it's likely that whenever any of us recognises a face, the same bits of our brain light up. There was one problem, however, in that sometimes the test subjects recognised a face even when they hadn't seen it before. And their brain activity was the same as with a genuine recognition. So if you wanted to take an fMRI of someone examining a police lineup, it wouldn't be able to rule out any false positives. And the scanning software can tell you if someone believes they recognise a face. But one of the key findings here, I think, is that the researchers have been able to pinpoint what happens when memories are triggered. Because some people can't actually recognise faces. There's a problem with the brain. It's called prosopagnosia. And this is where the region of the brain, it's the superior temporal lobe that does face recognition, isn't it? That goes wrong. Perhaps someone has a brain injury or a stroke or something. And this leaves the person, although they are otherwise perfectly capable of recognising someone's voice, the thing that someone says, even the smell of a person, when they see photographs of faces, they just can't tell one from another. Yeah, and you'd probably find that that neural signature that they found in this in these test subjects just wouldn't happen in people with that problem. 
So are you saying then that this could have forensic value, whereby at the moment we might have a lineup and you rely on somebody going, oh, I think I might recognise that person number three in the lineup, that perhaps instead you could show people a virtual lineup in a brain scanner and watch what their brain does, and this might be a more accurate or more effective way of working out whether or not someone really does recognise a potential criminal? Well, potentially, yes, but as the researchers point out, what this scan reveals is if someone believes they recognise a face. So if they, they think they recognise it, but actually they haven't seen it before, the scan won't be able to pick that up. That's certainly fascinating stuff. So maybe the courtroom will have to incorporate an MRI scanner in future. Who knows? Thank you, Diana. Now, something that caught my eye this week is a paper in the journal Science. This is by researchers in Beijing. It's Yan Hui Lu and colleagues. And what they've found is that cultivating a pest-resistant GM crop strain can paradoxically create a whole new breed of bugs. So in other words, you swap one problem, solve that for another one. What they've done is to look at the impact of growing a genetically modified strain of cotton across northern China for the last 10 years. The strain of cotton they've been looking at is one called BT cotton, and it's called that because the plant has had added to it the gene from a bacterium called Bacillus thuringiensis, which is an environmental bacterium. They've put into this, the, the cotton a gene from this bacterium which is encoding a toxin, and so this toxin kills certain types of plant pest, and it's been very successful. In fact, 95% of the cotton grown in this bit of China is this GM strain, and specifically it's been able to get rid of a major notorious cotton pest called the cotton bollworm. Previously, crop growers and cotton growers would have had to have put lots of pesticides on every year to stop this particular pest devastating their crops. They don't have to do that now. But, and there is a but, therein lies the problem. Because what's happened, although this major previous pest has now been dealt with, what has happened instead is that previously low-grade, low-level pests, which were there and would have been taken away by the spraying and therefore never became a nuisance, have instead been able to increase their numbers because some of these pests are actually naturally resistant to the genetic modification and this toxin that's in the cotton now. One of these is called the myriad bug. And what's happened now is that because the, the farmers aren't spraying, as a result, these myriad bugs have reached very, very large levels and they're not fussy eaters, they don't just eat cotton. So they're amplifying in the cotton and then spreading over into adjacent uh, crop species and eating those as well. And so as the researchers point out in a quote from their paper, area-wide cultivation of transgenic crops can bring with it various direct and indirect effects on ecological statuses of different organisms and this needs to be assessed and anticipated in a comprehensive fashion. So what they're saying is that you can't just assume that if you go in there with GM technology and tackle one problem, there aren't going to be others. And, and it may be that the solution to this is maybe to reinstate a bit of spraying because then every, if you have a little bit of spraying, perhaps every few years, you can stop the populations of these resistant bugs reaching plague proportions. But let's not forget, at the same time, these GM crops have solved a major problem and farmers are not having to use large levels of insecticides that they would have had to have done previously, which would have had all kinds of potentially knock-on effects for the environment and also for other species that, that are not plant pests but are susceptible to the insecticide. So in some respects, it's still very good news. Well, it does seem that wherever there's a niche to be exploited, something's going to come along and exploit it. Unfortunately, nature is very good at doing that. Um, so, yes, the answer is you can't take for granted if you just put one barrier in the way. It's rather like the tide coming in. The water's probably going to find its way round the back of the wall, and that's exactly what's happened with this particular strain of GM crops. Indeed. And also this week, researchers have found the chemicals that make mice scared stiff if they smell a predator, such as a cat, rat or snake. Publishing in the journal Cell, a team from California 
again, wanted to know what it was about these predators that caused stress hormone levels in mice to rise and why they'd flatten themselves against the floor, even if the predator wasn't visible. Lisa Stowes and colleagues discovered that the trigger was a group of proteins found in urine, and they're known as MUPs, or major urinary proteins. And these are secreted by just about every vertebrate on the planet, but they're very species-specific. And one section of the mouse's nose is very sensitive to these proteins. The researchers already knew that the mouse vomeronasal organ could pick up pheromones from other mice, but the idea that they were sensitive to those of other mammals is new. And in their tests, they placed mice, which had an inactive vomeronasal organ, close to the uh, close to an anaesthetised rat, so it wasn't going to eat them. And because the mice couldn't smell any of these mups, the mice showed no signs of fear, and one even curled up and went to sleep next to the rat. So it shows that the visual spectacle of a rat on its own doesn't play a part in predator recognition. That's fascinating, because we've known for a long time that mice will avoid areas where cats have been and where rats have been and people knew that cat urine was a very, very big deterrent for these species and there must be something smelly about the cats and rats that were putting the mice off. And another interesting point is that if the mice catch a particular parasite, one called toxoplasmosis, which is actually carried by cats and wants to get back into cats because that's where it reproduces and then gets out of the cat and and back into the environment and then into mice, if mice get infected with that parasite, they lose the ability to be scared of cats and rats. The idea being that the parasite wants the mouse to be eaten by the cat so that then it completes its life cycle. So it'll be interesting to see whether the toxoplasmosis works by deactivating the input from that vomeronasal organ, the thing in the nose that makes the mice smell the cat. Yeah, it must be interfering with these mups or the the take-up of of these mups somehow. But uh, what it means is that the the fear of the cat, rat and snake smell must therefore be hardwired since these mice have been bred in labs for nearly 80 years and I think very few would have met Mr Tibbles at any point. (laughs) Thank you. Well, another thing, I mean, from the sense of smell to another special sense, which is the sense of hearing, um, there's an excellent study which has been done this week. It's actually published in the journal Cell by researchers at Stanford, Stefan Heller and his colleagues, and they present a way to recreate in the dish what are called hair cells. Now, these are not the things that make you hairy on the top of your head. They are specialised cells that are found in the inner ear of all, all animals, effectively, that want to hear things, because these are the cells that have the ability to transduce or convert sound waves into brain waves. They respond to tiny vibrations in air and they, they actually turn those tiny vibrations into electrical signals that the brain decodes to understand sound. Now, the problem is... These cells are really hard to study because, A, there's not very many of them, and, B, no one until now has succeeded in making them grow in the dish. And if you can't grow them in the dish, you can't work out how they work properly, what kills them, what makes them grow more, and so on. And the big problem is that in humans, mammals, you only have so many of these cells and they have to last a lifetime. If you lose them, you then go deaf. And so with so many of us facing deafness in the future because of exposure to lots of loud noises, we'd really like to know how to make these cells, A, not get killed in the first place, and B, perhaps how to replace them, because some animals can. Birds, for example, can replace their hair cells if they die. What this group have done is to show in mice how they can take skin cells, 
turn those skin cells with a cluster of genes being added to them into stem cells and then by exposing those stem cells to various growth factors they can fool them into thinking they're back in the embryonic ear and they develop into these hair cells and they're able to make hair cells that behave and look under the microscope identical to these normal hair cells that you would see in an intact person so this is really encouraging it shows for the first time it's possible to make them now we can make them we can study them we can find out what makes them vulnerable and possibly we can find out how to make more of them. So that could be really helpful when there's this figure of, you know, up to 30% of us becoming deaf by the age of, well, old. (laughs) Indeed, because scientists are suggesting that uh, with the present noisy environment in which we inhabit, perhaps one person in three could end up losing their hearing by old age. And uh, if we can find out how to replace or renew or encourage to renew or make less vulnerable these hair cells, then we're certainly on the way to helping to solve what's going to be a really big problem in the future. Fantastic news. Thank you. Also in the news this week, researchers have discovered why Tibetans who have a taste for the high life are much better able to tolerate low oxygen conditions that are found at altitude compared with their lowland living counterparts. It turns out that they carry at least 10 unique genes that enable them to do it. And to tell us more from the University of Utah is Tatum Simonson. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you for asking. If you could... Tell us, first of all, um, what was the reason for doing this study? What were you aiming to find out? So we were interested in identifying the genetic basis for high-altitude adaptation. And what's interesting is that several research groups have done an excellent job characterizing sets of physiological traits that are unique to native high-altitude inhabitants. Um, And these studies have suggested that populations have adapted to this extreme environment, but the genetic basis wasn't entirely known. So, in other words... By living at high altitudes for many generations, these individuals must have accrued some kind of genetic changes that mean they're much better adapted to living there than, say, me. That's exactly right. So Um, how do you... Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, how do you approach that problem? So it's only recently that we've been able to actually look at our genetic code or DNA And by looking at single changes in the DNA sequence, uh, we can identify regions that have been subject to what we call natural selection, Um, the idea being that these variants have been beneficial for some particular region in a particular environmental setting and have been passed on through the generations um, and allowed individuals to survive. The thing is there are three billion letters in the human genetic code. So how do you home in on the bit that you think might be important in this instance? Um, So what we use uh, is an approach that looks at what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms, or tags, across the entire genome. Um, And we identify blocks or regions of the genome that exhibit a certain signature. And the signature that we see with natural selection is that um, basically you have a whole region that's increased rapidly in the population. And that leaves behind a, um, a certain sign that we can look at and compare it actually with the rest of the genome. And it really stands out as a, as a striking signal um, for us to then go in and analyze. So in other words, if you take people who live at high altitude in Tibet and have done for many generations, and you compare them with the rest of the world who don't live at those kind of altitudes, and you're looking for specific hotspots in their DNA that keeps cropping up time and time again in the Tibetans but not in other people, this points you towards thinking in that region of the genome there must be some beneficial change that helps these people to survive where they do. That's exactly right. And we were able to do that um, by comparing the Tibetans with uh, publicly available information on both 
Japanese and Han Chinese populations. Those populations presumably being significant because they're going to be relatively closely related in terms of human ancestry to to the people you're studying, so you can iron out a lot of other changes. Exactly, and they've typically lived in lowland regions, which is key for our study. And when you did this, what did you find? Did you home in on some genes that, that you do think enable these people to survive where I would struggle? Yes. So as you mentioned, we have at least 10 genes um, that we've identified. And what's interesting is that two of those genes were actually correlated with a certain physiological trait, which is unique to Tibetans. And that is the fact that Tibetans exhibit hemoglobin concentration, which is similar to somebody, say, living in London, so somebody at or near sea level, yet they're all the way up at 4,000 meters. So any non-adapted individual would increase their hemoglobin to compensate for the oxygen-deprived environment. So when we compared two of our selected regions of the genome to the hemoglobin levels we measured, we found that two of them actually are associated with this decreased hemoglobin level. So in other words, if I went up to a very high altitude, I would compensate for the low oxygen by increasing the amount of hemoglobin. This helps me to get more oxygen around my body, but has negative consequences because my blood's going to become thicker, stickier, gloopier, therefore I'm more likely to have consequences like high blood pressure and heart attacks and strokes. That's right. That's exactly right. But the Tibetans don't. But the Tibetans don't. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of, I mean, this area definitely needs more research. We know that this isn't happening, but it also could be sort of a side effect of something else that's been advantageous and selected for so that they don't need to increase their hemoglobin because they are already so efficient, um, perhaps through some other mutation. And I guess, just to finish off, the benefit of doing this kind of work is that there are situations where people who don't live in Tibet above 4,000 metres but nonetheless have very low levels of oxygen in the bloodstream. I'm thinking people who have lung problems, lung infections, blood clots on the lung, maybe their whole body is exposed to low oxygen because of drowning or carbon monoxide poisoning or something. Understanding, therefore, how people cope naturally in these environments might provide a a clue as to how we develop medical therapies to help people who are acutely in that situation. Yes, that's exactly true. So this information can definitely help researchers develop therapies or even drug targets for for people who have various... uh, amounts of, of, you know, oxygen-deprived disease or that sort of a thing. Is that where you're going next with this? Um, We do. We hope to go forward. Uh, The idea being if we understand why people do well, then perhaps we we can help those who aren't doing as well at high altitude. Including one or two climbers, perhaps. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Tatum, thank you very much. That's uh, Tatum Simonson. She's from the University of Utah, and she's published that work this week in the journal Science. And incidentally, if you'd like to read a bit more about any of those news stories, you can find details of them, including the references, on our website. It's all at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This week, we're exploring the science of synthetic biology. Later in the show, we'll hear students internationally are competing to build genetically engineered machines and how researchers are designing enzymes from scratch. But first, to explain more about what we mean by synthetic biology, we're joined by Dr. Jim Hasloff, and he's a plant scientist at Cambridge University. So, Jim, what do we mean by synthetic biology? Well, synthetic biology has quite a a broad some might say ambiguous meaning, and if you look at synthetic in the in terms of the dictionary and in its definition, you've got two accepted meanings for synthetic, and that's mirrored in the activities in the field. 
So synthetic can mean artificial, something derived and unnatural. And there are many people looking at systems which are artificial and used in biology in a sense they don't come from the natural world. But as well as this, you've got the actually the original uh, meaning of the word synthetic derived from its root, which is that it's pertaining to construction. And that's really, uh, one would argue, is, is one of the primary efforts in synthetic biology is to build new techniques for constructing or rearranging biological systems. So if we're building things with biology, what kind of disciplines are involved in that? Well, it's highly interdisciplinary because you've got the understanding of the biological systems that's required, as well as these formalisms that come from engineering. So the idea that you can construct biological systems is based on the idea of modularity and having individual components that you can put together in a crude sense, like Lego blocks, that they're modular pieces that can be put together, but also the complexity of biological systems, which work in a very different way from normal man-made artefacts, where a man-made artefact might be designed from the top down and things are connected from one to the other. But in a biological system, things are emergent, things have simple bases, but it's the interactions that build the kind of complexity that we see inside biological systems, and that applies to artificial ones as well. And it's there that computational science plays a major role in our understanding of these systems, and it's required for not just for understanding but also design. Can you give some examples of what synthetic biology has been used for so far? Well, it's a very nascent field. It's a very early field. And in fact, in a way, the iGEM competition, this genetically engineered machine competition that you'll be talking about in a minute, is one of the major inputs into the field. And it's unusual because it's essentially a student-driven competition and it's driven by this conception of people coming together and sharing components or modules. And the idea that you can take these simple functional elements and put them together into more complex systems is something that's quite new in biology. And we've been doing genetic engineering of systems for something like 35 years now as a field. And there's been this relative huge growth in our ability to manipulate the basic systems. But our ability to... So there's an anecdotal way of looking at that, for example. If you use the kind of understanding that we do have, you could ask any two biologists on the planet to put something together. Any two molecular biologists could assemble a system if you defined it for them. But they do it in a completely different way. Each individual would use bespoke techniques to construct this. And that's quite unlike any other form of engineering at this point. And so what synthetic biology is all about is putting in place the kind of rules and components that allow you to formally assemble systems in a, in a regular routine way, which every other form of engineering adopts. So this isn't just biosystems. Well, it isn't just biochemicals, it's biosystems as well. You're combining lots of different systems to, to give one outcome. Absolutely. And I guess it's those lifelike properties that we take for granted, the, things, the fact that things can organise themselves and maintain themselves and repair themselves. They're the kind of properties that people need to deal with the major challenges in sustainable resources and things like sustainable agriculture, where you've got a biological basis. And to be able to re-engineer systems, uh, you require this uh, very different approach. One thing that science fiction likes writing about are biological computers. Um, so how are computer scientists looking at this at the moment? What's been done so far? Well, I think the main approaches have been to take the idea that you can have simple components and there's this concept of emergence that you can take simple underpinnings 
And they don't just mean parts that you can put together, but also the interactions that underlie systems, which might be comprised of simple elements. And I think when it comes down to it, the kind of biology that we're talking about here, there are more similarities with social systems and economic systems, where you have complex behavior and complex phenomena coming out of local interactions. And in the synthetic biology case, it's interactions between genes and gene products. In uh, you know wider, say, social situations, it's interactions between individuals. And so, for example, if you have simple drivers, like in society, if you're hungry, you want you go and get food, and someone fills that because they need to get feed themselves, so they will provide food for other people. And you have the kind of complex social systems you get around food and consuming food in society, uh, which are driven by these very simple, basic interactions. And it's a crude analogy, but in biology, you need to be able to think of how you could assemble those kind of systems, these complex systems, from these simple interactions. And so computer scientists have the tools which allow one to address these complex interactions and to look to engineer self-organisation. So they they can use these tools to, to look at the organisation, but has anyone actually built something that can store bits, data, binary information? Well, there's a number of crude um, attempts to put together systems which will retain information, have genetic memory, for example, and information processing. So essentially all genetic systems are based around this idea of taking inputs and providing outputs. So it's essentially like a cellular or genetic computer. And so there are many small examples where, for example, you can, for biosensors, for example, one can take a simple input, which might be the concentration of a chemical, and produce a genetic response, which produces some output, for example, a pigment that you can see. And what do you think's next? The concept of synthetic biology and this idea of having more formal engineering approaches of of manipulating genetic systems is not so much application-orientated, but it's a whole new process, a whole new way of looking at biological systems and being able to manipulate them. And those of us in the field see that it may make a major contribution to the kinds of things that we're moving towards in terms of sustainable technologies, which will be based on biological feedstocks and replacing some of the rather damaging ways that we deal with the environment at the moment and to move towards sustainable technologies. Well, uh, a little bit of plant fertiliser certainly sounds better than the 600-watt power unit I've got on my computer at the moment. But that was Dr Jim Hasloff. He'll be with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions for him or for us, then do get in touch. If you would like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also listen to us in Second Life, which uh, is what Nat Spirit is doing. And hello to all of you in Second Life. We're watching your conversation, so if you have any questions for the show, just shout out and we'll answer them for you. Nat Spirit says, do airline pilots, and this is on the subject of the Tibetan genes uh, that we covered earlier, do they have more haemoglobin? Well, the answer is that airlines uh, pressurise their airliners to about 7,000 feet worth of altitude, so slightly higher than ground level, and therefore there will be a slight augmentation in haemoglobin, but not a huge one. Probably not a physiologically, in other words, bodily significant effect. If those planes weren't pressurised and they were flying at the kind of altitude they did, everyone on board would be dead, of course, because 
because most airliners are flying at more than 30,000 feet. That's the equivalent of the top of Mount Everest, where if you don't have supplemental oxygen there and you're not acclimatised, then you'd be dead very, very quickly. So the answer is, when you go to altitude, you get a little bit more haemoglobin to compensate for the reduction in oxygen in the bloodstream, but it is proportional to how long you spend at altitude and how high you go. And because those planes are not flying very high, equivalently speaking, because of the pressure in the cabin, and the exposure is limited, there won't be a very dramatic effect, but there might be a small one. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll. We're talking about the science of synthetic biology, and every year since 2003, teams of university students around the world, including from Cambridge University, have been taking part in a synthetic biology competition, which is called iGEM, and that stands for the International Genetically Engineered Machine. The teams who take part are actually given a kit of biological bits and pieces, which include DNA and some gene sequences, and they have to use those to solve a bigger biological problem and then make their solution work in real living cells. In previous years, the teams have made bugs smell like bananas or even wintergreen, which sounds nice, and they've even built a bacterial arsenic sensor. Mira Senthalingam has been along to talk to last year's Cambridge eChromi team. They built colour-changing E. coli and actually won the competition, and she's been finding out how they got into it and what they got out of it. Graduate student James Brown was one of the supervisors involved. iGEM is an educational initiative that started about five years ago out of MIT and it really is about bringing together students of different disciplines, typically uh, biological science students and engineering students, to think about some of the new challenges we're facing in the 21st century. The teams vary in size from six to 12 undergraduates typically. They're given a set of biological parts, that's pieces of DNA that they're shipped at the beginning of the summer and that's made up of a series of switches and fluorescent proteins from uh, coral and, and jellyfish. All of the basic components that have been designed and built by previous teams over the summer's gone by. And then they're challenged to uh, not only create their own ones but use those basic components to, to piece together and build modular biological systems. Thank you, James. The eChromi team consisted of four biologists, two engineers and one physicist. And with me is one of the biologists, Vivian Mullen. Now, Vivian, tell me about eChromi then. So what is it and what does it do exactly? So eChromi was our project that we developed over the summer. Basically, it's a bacterial biosensor. We built a bacteria to be able to sense the presence of a pollutant, for example, heavy metal, and then change colour depending on the concentration of that chemical. What is this biosensor made up of? So it consists of, I guess, three parts, which are DNA parts. The first part is the heavy metal sensor, um, which basically involves a protein that binds to the DNA when the chemical is present. Then what it does is it causes an output. So in a simple system, it would directly cause the output of colour. But on our system, we also had a thing called a sensitivity tuner. We had the heavy metal sensor then cause the expression of a protein, which then bound to another piece of DNA and then made the colour output. So basically using different combinations of this protein and the other piece of DNA, we were able to change the threshold of the output from the original heavy metal sensor. So essentially you'd be able to test for different concentrations of certain chemicals? Yes, and then you would actually have a visible output of multiple different colours depending on how you design the system. And what bacteria was this all inserted into? So this was in E. coli, which is a standard host that we used. The main aim of iGEM is to bring together biologists, engineers, so people of different scientific areas, really. So also here is Alan Walbridge, who was one of the engineers on the team. So, Alan, what was your contribution to this project? So what, what would you say your key role was to look at when this e was being developed? 
So we brought numerical analysis to this project. So we're looking at gene expression, and an easy way to measure this is using a fluorescent protein. And because we know that that doesn't decay very quickly, if we look at the rate of change of fluorescence, we can be fairly sure that corresponds to the rate of production of fluorescence. And that then is the gene activity at that particular point. And so by doing large-scale analysis over different concentrations, we're able to work out this gene activity. Essentially, you were kind of looking at the data and the actual kind of numbers involved with the project in order to see how effective it was. Yes, that's right. And how, Vivian, would you summarise the biological contributions to the project? So we were able to do the lab work and then bring some biological insights to interpret the data that the engineers had brought forward. What would the aims then of this type of design be? What would be some hopeful or potential applications of this? A member of our team is actually, she's graduating this year and is staying on um, to move some of these parts into a different house. So we were working in E. coli, um, but possibly other hosts would be more more useful for the applications of this design. And then other members of the lab are working on moving it to plants. What would be some potential real-world applications if this was developed even further? So the point of our project was to solve a problem of water contamination. We wanted to develop a really accessible user-friendly technology that would anyone could use to test whether or not their water is contaminated and safe to drink. And just lastly, I guess a key part of the project is just to mix the disciplines up as well. So what would you say you both learnt about each other's disciplines? So I learned how to think like an engineer, which is not to think of what this does in its natural environment, but how could we use this in a system with other parts and how could we piece them together? That was really interesting. (laughs) And Alan? Like I said, I entered this with very little biologic experience, but I learnt an awful lot about how the bacteria work and through some intensive lab work over the summer, I feel I've become a little bit of a biologist now. I'd like to take part myself. It sounds like fantastic fun. That was Alan Woolbridge, and before him, Vivian Mullen. They're both students at Cambridge University, and they were winners of last year's iGEM competition. Uh, you also heard the team supervisor and a graduate student, James Brown. He was talking at the beginning, and they were all chatting with Mira Senthalingam. And looking at the iGEM website, it looks like they're expecting 180 teams around the world to take part this year. So it's certainly flourishing. Thanks to them. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll. We're talking synthetic biology, so if you have any questions for us, you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com, or send us a tweet on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientist. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll, and we're talking synthetic biology this week. Still to come, the biological trick that keeps your clothes clean... Um, We'll also hear why humans have different blood groups. But first, one of the main aims that scientists have for synthetic biology is, rather than relying on nature to come up with all the answers, instead we want to be able to take what nature has already made and make it even better for doing certain jobs. And Dr Ross Anderson at Bristol University is trying to do just that. Essentially, what I want to do is create an enzyme from scratch. So enzymes are a class of protein, proteins being a polymer of uh, molecules we call amino acids. They're protein catalysts. They perform and accelerate chemical reactions. And there's a huge diversity of enzymatic catalysis. So photosynthesis, for instance, hydrogen production. There's a huge range of of reactions which would um, be exceptionally good for us to actually tap into and harness the power of, like solar power to generate hydrogen, for instance. That'd be very, very attractive. 
So these are, are nature's catalysts. Without them, yeah. the chemical reactions that keep us alive just couldn't happen. Sounds like nature's doing a wonderful job. Why do we need you? And I mean that in the nicest possible way. <laughs> we still, after um, all these years of working with proteins, have a fairly tenuous understanding of how to build function into them. So we have a relatively decent understanding of how enzymes work. But so far, we've been unable to actually make one from scratch. So I think that there's a big gap in our understanding. If, if we can't make something from scratch, how do we truly understand it? So that's really where I'm coming from. And I think that if we can harness nature's toolkit, then there's a whole variety of possibilities available to us. The other thing as well is that through evolution, how these proteins have actually um, you know, evolved and have been put together by nature, we've to some degree lost that history. And we don't have the benefit of seeing the selective pressures that, that, that these proteins were under throughout the course of evolution. In other words, we're seeing the finished product rather than the product being developed, and that makes it much harder to get to the nub of how these things, these micro-machines, work in the first place. Exactly. So we see a protein that's been evolved for several billion years, and then we want to change it in some way to match our own needs. And the problem we have is that it, it would be like, for instance, taking a, a Ferrari and trying to make it into a bus. The essential elements are the same, an engine, wheels, but you know, it's, it's going to be quite complicated to approach that in that particular way. So go on, give us some examples of, of things you've been working on. So an example is um, an oxygen binding protein. So we've called it an artificial myoglobin or, or neuroglobin. And what we did there was um, start with a very generic sequence. So we, we started with a protein that was made up of uh, 100 amino acids, but it was uh, only three different amino acids made up these 100. So we know it folds into a particular structure, which is useful for us. And then we sequentially added functions. So we took a molecule which is present in hemoglobin and myoglobin, it's called heme, and we inserted that into the, the protein interior. And then what we did after that was um, change the sequence of the protein so that oxygen could actually access the heme molecule and reversibly bind. This was actually the first example of a protein built from scratch that could do this particular function. Is this all done in vitro? In other words, you make these things artificially in the dish, or are you actually at the stage where you can say, well, that's the protein I want, so I can work out what the gene sequence would be, and then I can make that gene sequence and, say, put it into E. coli or yeast or something and get that to make it for you? It's a little bit of both at the moment. What usually happens is that we start with a protein sequence that we quite like, and then we would synthesize it in vitro. There's fairly decent systems now that are kind of almost like a robot which will build up your protein sequence for you. They're quite expensive though and so we tend to prefer uh, ordering an artificial gene which are now very very cheap and then we get something like E. coli or as you say yeast to make the protein for us. So generally the proteins I work with I get E. coli to make them which ends up exceptionally cheap in the end. Are there any risks associated with doing this kind of thing? With my work, I would say no. The gene that we um, insert into E. coli is completely benign. Uh, it certainly doesn't change how toxic the E. coli is to us. So in that sense, no, there, there really are no risks with what I do personally. And looking to the future, say we can build bespoke proteins, would there be both therapeutic and industrial applications here? Could you take some of these diseases that people suffer from because one of their own proteins is the wrong shape? and build one that works better for them and, and put it in. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this is really the you know what's going to happen in the future. I mean, we're we're really at the beginning of this whole field. Even though it's been running for about ten, fifteen years, there's there's not been a huge amount of progress. Primarily just because there's not really that many groups who've been working it. But what we could definitely see in the future is targeted therapies for, like you say, if there's uh, improperly uh, folded proteins in the body. Also, directed therapies against uh, cancer, for instance. We could make antibody silent proteins to go in and perform a reaction which kills cancerous cells, for instance. And industry is really the, I guess, where my work would be more applicable to. In the future, there's going to be, obviously, in the absence of uh, crude oil, we're going to have to look for other sorts of fuel. And a a big area of interest is, is making methanol from methane. And again, nature does this fairly well in the bog, but when we try and work with the proteins outside uh, the particular bog, they're not so amenable to industrial process. So what we're really trying to strive for is a cheap form of catalyst that we can just grow, essentially. Ross Anderson, and uh, he was talking to me from the University of Bristol. Diana. Well, although we've only just started making proteins from scratch to do work for us, we've been using enzymes around the home for decades, and Ben and Dave have been testing them out. Normally, you should never play with your food, but for kitchen science, we get special dispensation. Now, Dave, what are we actually doing? It's a slightly unusual kind of playing with our food, because it's more like washing our food. This is an experiment which takes a few days to do, so I set this up a while ago. What I've got here is three jars, one which is just full of water, and in the second one I've got some non-biological washing powder with about eight times as much water as washing powder. In the third one I've got some biological washing powder with eight times as much water as washing powder. And then I got a hard-boiled egg, chopped it up into chunks which are all about the same size, nice and thin, and I put one of these slices in each of the three jars and left it for three days. What good is a clean egg? Surely it's not edible anymore. So what are you actually trying to look at? One of the special things about biological washing powder is, in theory, it ought to have a lot of enzymes in it. Enzymes are vitally important chemicals inside your body. They make other chemical reactions go faster. The idea of the enzymes in washing powders is to break down the stains. So if you've got proteins, things like egg on your clothes, in theory these enzymes are specially designed to speed up the reaction which breaks up these proteins and so they come off your clothes more easily. So with any luck, they ought to damage the egg in the jar. What about non-biological washing powder? Does that just leave the egg on your clothes? Well, they don't actively attack it using enzymes. They've got lots of detergents which make things more soluble, you use lots of heat, you bash it around in the washing machine... And so it will come off, but probably not as well as biological washing powders. And let's have a look and see what we've actually got. Now, in this one, you've just got a few slices of boiled egg in a jar full of water. It doesn't look to me like anything's actually happened. No, the boiled egg just looks pretty much as good as new. It doesn't even smell gone off, so obviously very, very little biologically has happened to this egg at all. Okay, so in our second jar, now which washing powder is this with? This is a non-biological washing powder. Again, it just looks like normal egg. It's obviously got a layer of washing powder on it and it smells quite strong, but it doesn't seem to have been broken down at all. That's what you'd expect. There's nothing in there to actually attack the egg itself. So we wouldn't expect the detergents and the surfactants in normal washing powder to actually attack an egg? They'll dissolve any fats in there, but the proteins in egg white 
are basically great big long chain molecules and when you cook them they all tangle up and form a big tangled mess dissolving that is almost impossible because all the molecules are all tangled together and you can't get it apart so it will just sit there and the final jar the one with biological washing powder in there's quite a lot of what looks like almost fluff floating about on the surface of this one yeah, the stuff on the surface might be bits of the egg which have dissolved off, if I dig it out. The stuff on the surface actually looks a lot like the stuff you get when you do a proper poached egg. When you crack an egg into boiling water, you end up with this eggy, bubbly stuff on the surface. But how's the egg itself look? Quite difficult to fish it out, because the stuff's so murky. Oh, there's, there's a bit. Having a prod about with a spoon, that still feels quite firm. You can see that some of the membrane has, has come off, but... It doesn't really look that damaged. It doesn't look that eaten away. Would you expect the enzymes to have just eaten the whole egg up? It depends how long you leave it and at what temperature. I have a feeling that the enzymes in washing powders are designed to work at above 30, 40 degrees centigrade, whereas this room is barely 20. And so the enzymes are probably going to be working very, very inefficiently. Um, if we left it a bit longer and probably at a higher temperature, it should eat that egg away, yes. But the bubbly egg stuff in there is evidence that our enzymes are actually doing some work. They're doing something. In fact, if you look at the surface, it does look a little bit pitted up around here, and it's slightly less held together than the um, other egg. And so I think some bits of that have been falling off and floating up to the surface. Would you expect all biological washing powders to do this, or are some likely to be better than others? basically depends what they've put in the washing powder. There's proteases, which break up proteins, which we've been talking about so far, and they're in most biological washing powders, but not necessarily all of them, so some of them might not work at all. Um, you also get lipases, which break up fats, things like amylase, which break up starches, so if you get potato on your clothes, that will get broken down more easily. And you can even get cellulases, which break up cellulose, which is good for grass stains. It also slightly breaks down things like cotton, which was made out of cellulose. But that can actually make the clothes look newer, although it might reduce their total life. But the thing with enzymes, they are proteins. They operate in a, in a certain temperature range. And in fact, if you go too high, then you can break up the shape of the enzyme. And it's the shape that really does the work. How do the enzymes in biological washing powder cope with being put through, say, a 40-degree, a 50-degree wash? They won't work if you get it too hot, and they don't work very well if they're too cold either. Well, I think the trick is to let someone else do the work of finding out how to make something work in those temperatures. People have found bacteria which survive at the sort of temperatures used in a washing machine, 50, 60 degrees centigrade, perfectly happily. And they've found in these bacteria proteases, which split up proteins because lots of creatures need proteases. And basically they've taken those proteases and then multiplied them up into large quantities on industrial processes and put them in your washing powders. And so they're perfectly happy in the washing machine. Although if it gets too hot, again, they start working. So next time you spill egg on yourself, remember you might need to rely on a biological trick to get it back out of your clothes. We'll be back with more Kitchen Science very soon. And subsequently, Dave discovered that part of the problem seems to be that the eco-biological washing powders are not nearly as good as, at attacking egg as conventional biological washing powders, which are very effective. Also, be very careful to keep the washing powder off your skin and especially your eyes as it destroys proteins, which is what your skin is made of, so it can cause irritation. We'll put more info online at thenakedscientists.com forward slash kitchen science, where you can also find loads of other experiments to try at home.
Diana, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. We're discussing the science of synthetic biology this week and we have with us Jim Hasselhoff, who's a plant scientist and a synthetic biologist from Cambridge University. Um, we've got an interesting question or an interesting perspective, Jim, which has been raised from someone in Second Life, Paradox Olbers, who says, with synthetic biology, the real danger will actually come from deliberate design of malicious molecules. In other words, people who are being nefarious with this technology. Well, I think like with many technologies, there's uh, different applications and uh, certainly, as one can see with existing concerns about uh, terrorist activity and other potential dangers, people are very concerned about the misuse of, of uh, technologies. For example, recently the field has uh, highlighted the fact that these synthetic biology technologies can produce different types and more extreme uh, risks which uh, need to be guarded against. I remember about um, seven years ago, uh, someone decided to reassemble the genome of a polio virus using bits of genetic material they bought on the internet to prove that this was a genuine possibility, it could be done. I suppose, taking that a step further, you could do some fairly nasty things, given how easy it is to do some of this stuff these days. Yes, in fact, uh, well, DNA synthesis has been identified as one of the main potential dangers that people can reconstruct elements which might be pathogenic, for example. And so um, uh, recently there's been a, an agreement, an international agreement, among the major DNA synthesis companies. So every sequence that is submitted for synthesis is now vetted. So there is, it's, it would be, I wouldn't say impossible, but probably very difficult to uh, deliberately engineer a new DNA sequence for a pathogen at this point. But if you made those sequences really short... They're not going to know, are they? If you ordered them from lots of different companies and got lots of little bits and stitched them all together, it would take you a long time, but these people are dedicated. They want, they want to do what they want to do, and if they want to bypass the system, they're going to find a way of doing it. Well, I think the size of DNA elements that is unique is very small, and it would be essentially impractical to make any large scale. Even the smallest virus would be extremely difficult to construct that way. Fair enough. Well, I've got a question here from Sarah who says, how are genetically modified plants actually made to be pest resistant? Is it that they encode some kind of pesticide, like a toxin, or are they just, as her husband suggests, just made to... Oh, sorry, as she suggests, are they instead made just unpalatable for, for organisms? Well, the, the um, organic farmers actually use bacteria, as well as thuringiensis bacterium, which has a protein which affects the gut of specific insects. And that protein, uh, of course, is encoded in the gene, and that gene can be then transferred to plants using uh, genetic engineering techniques. So it's essentially a surgical procedure of isolating the particular gene using, in fact, a natural bacterium to transfer that into a plant, and then once it's in there, it's used as a gene that's for breeding. So presumably with synthetic biology, what one would do is to say, well, rather than take that toxin from a bacterium, what would be better would be to study the organisms that we want to make the plant resistant to and then find our own way of making the plant resistant and put some kind of specific thing into the plant that would be even better than what a bacterium toxin could do for us. Oh, that's certainly feasible in the longer term. I think most of the emphasis at this point is on a better engineering uh, using existing systems, existing parts from uh, what we know in, in the biological world and rearranging their delivery inside, say, for example, a crop system, where you might, for example, get around some of the issues we talked about earlier in the program, where you've got some insects which are immune to a, these very specific toxins and can escape. So you could imagine a second 
um, element that would deal with that, for example. I've got a question here from Paul Anderson, and he asks, can plant mutations be transmitted to people? I think it's safe to say no. The process of transfer, horizontal transfer from plants to humans requires some kind of vector, some kind of way of transferring it, and I'm certainly not aware of any uh, way of doing that. So if I eat a a funny-looking apple, it's not going to make me funny-looking then? I hope. (laughs) Well, well... (laughs) (laughs) Roland um, Williamson says, why should GM seeds be sterile? Um, I'm one of those who's totally torn by the issue of GM crops. I understand the argument, but the leap forward from annual selection and breeding of crops is overshadowed by the unnecessary control by the developers whereby they retain control of the seeds. How can that benefit uh, man? Politics has has starved for far more than ineptitude, he says. Well, I think it's an extremely interesting question. And with synthetic biology, a lot of us are struggling with this idea that uh, shifting towards modified biological systems that are based on parts and that those parts might be open source and the technology is very cheap. So there's certainly a potential for allowing access in developing countries to technology which can uh, dial straight into important sustainable technologies. The current model for biotechnology involves protecting elements and preventing other people using except under license. And so this idea of protecting or removing fertility in seeds can have a biosafety aspect but it also can have a, an aspect of limiting use. So and this is a question not for scientists, but for society. And just finally, in the last about 45 seconds, um, Ragav sent us an email saying, what, what do we know about using oil-degrading bacteria? This is very pertinent, of course, with what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico at the moment. Yes, in fact, one of the first um, patented organisms, and you know, it's another controversial issue as to whether you can patent things, was a, a microbe that had improved oil degradation properties. And so clearly... The appeal of synthetic biology approaches is that you can take some of the diversity that you find in the natural world and transfer that into organisms for more specific purposes. In other words, to to turn bacteria into things that can eat oil and therefore help BP with their cleanup. Jim, thanks very much. Jim Hazelhoff from uh, Cambridge University. Diana. Well, it's time for question of the week. And this week we've raided Dracula's fridge to see what's on offer. Oh, hi, Chris. This is Max from Toronto in Canada. I have a question uh, regarding blood types. Why do we humans have different types of, uh, of blood? And uh, is it an evolutionary thing? Where does it come from and what's the purpose of it? Also, do animals have any blood types as well? Thank you. Bye-bye. Does one blood group have advantages over another or is it more to do with having a bit of diversity? So my name is uh, Kent Gustafsson and uh, I'm a reader at UCL Institute of Child Health in London. Well, there are a number of different blood group systems, of course, or histoblood group systems that it should be called, really. However, the one that we normally think of as the main human blood group system is the ABO system. These days, I think it's fair to say that most people in the blood group field think that the ABO system has developed because of our interactions with pathogens, in other words, bacteria and virus. The genetically controlled ABO blood groups are in most people present in the stomach and the intestine. So the same ABO antigens found on blood cells will also be found on some cells in the intestines. And this has led to some bacteria using them as receptors to just simply hang on, perhaps, or even accessing into the body that that route, and therefore developing a preference for some of these. And some examples would perhaps be cholera, Campylobacter, E. coli of 157, as well as also some virus, for example, norovirus, which gives you gastroenteritis. 
But not all bacteria or virus of one species or kind will necessarily bind to the same type of ABO best. But different strains within the same bacterial species may bind with different affinity to different ABO blood group structures. It's certainly clear that other primates other than humans also have the ABO blood group system. So it probably developed before the primate group diverged. And also there are very similar looking blood group systems in other mammals as well. And it's known, for example, that cows have a number of different blood group systems. So having certain blood types can provide you with some protection against certain strains of pathogen. Kent also added that some bacteria and viruses will pick up the blood type of their last host so that when they invade a new host with a different blood type, the new host's antibodies recognise it and attack it. Other animals have blood groups too, but let's turn to animal noises for next week's question. Hi, this is Evil Eye from Mount Dora, Florida in the United States. My question is... Why did donkeys hee-haw, horses bray, and what sound do zebras make? They're all vaguely the same shape, so why don't they make the same noise? Let us know your thoughts by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com or by writing on our Naked Scientists online forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. Thanks, Diana. Well, that's it for this week. We've run out of time. It remains for me to say a very big thank you to our guests this week, who were Tatum Simonson, Jim Hasselhoff and Ross Anderson, and also to, of course, our wonderful production and presentation team here at The Naked Scientist, Mira Senthalingam, Ben Vausler, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. Join us next week when we're exploring the science of transmissible tumours. These are cancers that can spread from one individual to another, almost like an organ transplant. We'll also hear how viruses can trigger certain types of cancer, including cervical cancer, and we'll have an update on whether the recently introduced cervical cancer vaccine is working quite as we expected. So if you have any questions about any of that, then please do send them via email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. And in the meantime, have a very nice week. Thank you for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.